6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 1 through 8, verse 14. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? So they apparently uh, are swayed by her description. They're prepared to help. We're convinced. We'll seek him also, they say. That's the flavor of the chorus here. So you get to verse 2. My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. So the dream is now over and he has returned. So we're shifting here. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's Hebrews 13.5. So she has this declaration that occurs frequently three times in this whole piece. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. See, three times we have this declaration, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. The first time is chapter 2, verse 16, which in effect raises the question, have you given yourself to him? In chapter 6, verse 3 here, it's confirmed, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. We're going to run into it again in chapter 7, verse 10, where every doubt is gone. But again, it's that same refrain, refrain uh, in the context of the passage at the time. Something else I want to point out about this verse here, in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 6, it turns out in the Hebrew, it's an acrostic. In the Hebrew, the first four words form an acrostic. Um, uh, when an acrostic is, it's like uh, NASA for the National Aeronautic Space Administration. NASA is an acrostic. Um, uh, radar, radar detection and ranging. There are words that sometimes you take the first letter of a group of words and it becomes an acrostic. That's what's happening here. It's an acrostic in Elul, which is the sixth Jewish month, which corresponds in our calendar typically to August or September. It's the month of preparation for the fall feasts. Of the Jewish calendar, the fall feasts are the climax of the religious year. They're the beginning of the civil year. The first of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the civil year. But it, on the religious year, it's the Feast of Trumpets, followed in 10 days by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the most solemn day of the year. And five days later, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. So those three fall feasts are very critical in the Jewish calendar. Okay, So we have the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles, which in addition to commemorating history, they also are prophetic. All seven Feasts of Moses are. The first three uh, are, they start with Passover in the spring, with the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. And they all are commemorative of history, but they're also prophetic of the first coming of Christ. And uh, because Passover, he is the Passover lamb. John the Baptist introduces him that way. And uh, with a Jewish title, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's a Passover label when he first introduces him publicly. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is, is what's celebrated that also embraces a feast of first fruits, which is the morning after Shabbat, after Passover. In other words, a Sunday morning. And that celebrates the resurrection. 
That's all, and so, so they're prophetic. The last three feasts are prophetic of the second coming. Between those is a very strange one called, called the Feast of Shavuot or Feast of Pentecost, which is the day that the church was born. And some sus- suspect it might be the day of the rapture because we discover apparently that, um, that uh, Enoch was translated on his birthday and Enoch was removed from the world before the judgment of, the, of Noah's flood. And there's a whole study I encourage you to get into on all of that. So the thing I want you to be aware of that the Jews' catechism is his calendar. You really want, even a Christian, you want to really understand the Jewish calendar because it's rich in meaning and, and, uh, and so forth. But let's, uh, here we'll move on. We're going to go into the fourth idol, the sexual problem reflections, and we've just seen the, the, the eighth one. We're going to move on to the ninth one now, the return of Solomon having come after that, that troubled dream that uh, Shulamite has just described. Verse 4, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tizra, uh, Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. In the reconciliation, the first words of the lover to his beloved were words of praise. These are, these are positive things, okay? The, the name Terza means delightful. Oh, my love, as you're delightful, as comely as Jerusalem, and so forth. And uh, uh, it's a lovely oasis, which later became the royal residence of four different kings of the northern kingdom. Basha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri had their royal residence at Terza. So they, that's a positive term as a lovely oasis and so on. The beloved was also as lovely as Jerusalem, called the perfection of beauty. That's the that's, that's way Jerusalem is regarded in the literature. All the passed-by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? And, of course, that's a, a, a quote from Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 15. The perfection of beauty. That's the, 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 the label, the equivalent of, of Jerusalem, in effect. Psalm 48, first two verses. Great is the Lord, and greatly be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. We sing that as a song often, don't we? And uh, it's uh, the, the, on the sides of the north. Now, there's a mystery here uh, that is yet to be used. Something is very special about the sides of the north because that's what Satan aspires to in Isaiah 14. And Golgotha was on the north side of the city. I think there's more to be unraveled here allegorically which is really a topic for another time. Let's move on here. The sides of the north. Strange term. Moving on. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. In other words, he uh, is totally vanquished. The beloved's beauty was so awesome that it unnerved him as if he faced an army with banners, is the idea. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Here again, we have this flock of goats thing as a positive thing. It may strike us as strange, but that's the idiom. His eyes were so stunningly beautiful that they overwhelmed them. And in the Hebrew verb uh, usage here, to press overpoweringly against one, to infuse terror. The hifil stem means that the use of the verb is to empower somebody else to get something happening. So, so press overpoweringly against one to infuse uh, terror. By repeating part of the phrase that he had given to her on the wedding night back there in chapter 4. He's indirectly telling her that his love for her had not diminished since that first night. It is not based on performance. His love was unconditional is the undertone here. Very, very fundamental. 
and goats again. In, in Israel, the Syrian goats are mostly black, silk and hair, as I mentioned before. And uh, so there, this is, this is a, a positive uh, uh, word image here he's using. It's not to our ears, perhaps. It was to them then. And, of course, the hair is the one's glory, uh, glory going on. And he continues this, this rundown. The teeth are like a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one of them beareth twins, and there's not one barren among them. And again, his, the, uh, he's, he's speaking positively of her with idioms he's used before. And for the meaning of all these metaphors and her hair and so forth, you can go back uh, to chapter 4, first three verses, which are parallel here to these verses in chapter 6. And of course, Paul alluded to the long-haired woman in the New Testament in a, in a similar way here. And of course, sheep washed and shorn and white, matched, non-missing, pearls. These are all idioms he used earlier. And so those are repeats in a sense. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. And again, we went through the pomegranates before, uh, and uh, they're, they're a common idiom in the scripture. And this temple is, uh, intrigues me as a possible pun in terms of, of uh, your thought life, if you will. But let's move on here. And... Uh, uh, I've described the pomegranate before and why they seem to be the model for the crown and so on. Okay, there are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. Wow. This might be just a rhetorical device. Um, not that I have, but that there are 60, 80, and so forth without number. What he's saying, in effect, she's the best beyond all the others, is the flavor of the rhetorical device. She's like a one in a million is another way of, that we might say the same thing. But uh, some use this verse to support the view that Solomon cannot be thus a type of Christ in this passage. And that is really uh, inconsistent because the fact that he later collapsed doesn't cloud the use of the idiom here for a lot of reasons. But uh, we'll get into that in the next session, the allegorical side of all of this. So anyway, here, in fact, his love and appreciation for her had grown since then. That's the concept that is being expressed here. He assured her that she was totally unique in, uh, in verses uh, 8 and 9 of this chapter. As his dove, back in chapter 5, you recall, as an opinion shared by her mother in the subsequent verse is going to show up, and also the maidens, the daughters, queens, and concubines in uh, the ninth verse. So let's move on here. He says, my dove, my undefiled is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She's the choice one of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. So again, it's, 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 he's using figures of speech in a positive sense. Okay, And so on seeing the husband and wife reconciled, the women are amazed at her beauty and so forth. They blessed her. The daughter saw her and blessed her. So they're, they're favorably impressed. Okay, so now we, we are going to go ahead and uh, go down through the fifth idol. There are four reflections left in the book, and we'll go through this. The dance of the Mananim, um, in, in, which constitutes um, the rest of chapter 6, the first part of chapter 7. Let's uh, uh, zip through this one. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? She's being likened to the morning dawn here, actually. Of the two Hebrew words for moon, this one emphasizes the whiteness of the moon rather than the other one, which emphasizes the yellow, strangely enough. Of the two Hebrew words for sun, this one emphasizes the warmness rather than the other, which pictures the sun as unwearied. So the selection of the Hebrew terms here, color, 
the flavor of what he's saying, if you will. Army with banners. See, that just like Solomon mentioned back in verse 4, they liken her beauty as a bannered army going forth confident of victory. They praised her, verse 9. Uh, he said, by stating that she was as fair as the dawn, the moon, the sun, and the stars is the flavor of this passage here. I went down to the Garden of, of Nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. The Garden of Nuts. And we're going to find chariots in the next verse. I want to just footnote this. I don't think this refers to Southern California because of the nuts and the chariots, but let's go on here. Verses 11 through 13 tell the story of the couple's reconciliation from the beloved's point of view. She knew that she had gone down to his garden, so she went there to see if their love was still in bloom, in effect. And uh, see, we, we always need continual assurances. The women especially need continual assurances. And we as husbands need to respond to that daily, frequently, creatively, sincerely. And uh, it's important. As a person would look down, uh, would look in the spring for new growth, buds on grapevines, pomegranate blossoms, so she looked for fresh evidence of their love. Okay? When she found him, there, there his first words were words of praise, indicating that their love was in fact flourishing. And, uh, or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadib. Now, this is one of the difficult verses in this passage, in the, in the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret, is verse 12 here. The Hebrew can be translated several different ways. Amenadib can also be translated chariots of my people, or the noble, or my noble people. There's several ways that this can take a, a, a different flavor. And uh, so, one translation, which is much documented, is, I became enraptured, for you placed me on the chariots of the people of the prince. And that's descriptive, that, that would fit the situation and that of the different alternatives, the one that seems to make the most sense to me at least. And uh, when the husband's first words in the garden were words of praise, she became enraptured and was beside herself with joy. He then placed her on his own chariot at the head of the entourage, is the idea. Now, the Hebrew and the Greek text both place the next verse at the beginning of chapter 7, by the way. These chapter and verse things are for this in this particular book uh, are not that useful, really, except as frames of reference. Continuing uh, verse 13 here, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may gaze upon thee. What will we see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. And by the way, this is the first use of the term Shulamite in the book, incidentally. The Hebrew word rendered Shulamite is actually the feminine form of the name Solomon. And so it really means solemnness, or Mrs. Solomon is another way to look at it. But we're using it just as a label of the, of, of the female over there. Shulam may be the same as Shunem, a village just north of the Jezreel Valley, and mentioned several times in the Old Testament, today known as Shulam. The I and the N sounds are often interchanged in both Hebrew and Semitic languages. So it may be the town of the tribe of Issachar located on the foot of the hill of Moreh, also known as Little Hermon. And these are all just conjectures in terms of location. We do know it's up there in the galley. It was known for its beautiful women. Abishag was a Shunammite, if you will, in 1 Kings 1. Elisha's hostess also lived there in 2 Kings 4, for what it's worth. But now we're encountering the dance of the Mananim, 
and uh, the uh, Mikola is dancing or dance, and Machina is a, uh, it's used uh, in a number of different ways of an encampment or those encamp, a body. So we've got a big dancing thing going on here that's going to be described. There's also a town of Ananim, which means two camps, maybe somehow associated with this dance, though the point of the association is very clear, not least to the, uh, the stuff I've consulted. Uh, Mananim was east of the Jordan River where Jacob met the angels. It was also where David uh, fled from Absalom. And uh, uh, so it's got some Old Testament history, but it's not clear what coloration it lends to the opera. Uh, that's uh, very maybe just conjectural. But there's a big dance going to go on here. How beautiful are the feet with sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves or vibrations of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist or a cunning workman. See, in chapter 4, he started, in talking about her, started at the top and stopped, and stopped at her breast. Here he starts with her feet and gets even more intimate, strangely. He's going to describe her here. The Hebrew word for feet signifies step and foot. Portraying her as dancing with her feet, going back and forth, is the flavor here. Okay. In describing the dancing, uh, her dancing thighs and so forth, Solomon points to the manifold twistings and windings of the upper part of her body by means of thigh joints, for the Hebrew words signify movements of a circular kind. So we've got, a, a, there's a lot going on here. The Hebrew word for curves refers to the thighs in motion and not the beauty of the curves of the thighs at rest. The entire Hebrew passage points towards a dancing female, basically. It's, a, it's in Hebrew describing a dancing female. The thighs in motion are described as jewels. The Hebrew word signifies female ornaments consisting of gold, silver, and precious stones. The figure seems to be suggesting the bending of thighs and loins, full of life and beauty, like a tree swinging of such ornaments when connected uh, to a chain. Thy navel is like a round goblet, which lacketh not mingleth with wine. Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set upon with lilies. The navel is described here in the shape of a half moon uh, with a roundness of a basin, the kind of basin used for mixing of fine wines. And, uh, and so on it goes here. The belly or waist is a heap of wheat, points to the color of her flesh, the mixture of wheat yellow along with some lily white. Thy two breasts are like two young roes or fawns, twins of a gazelle. And this is very similar to what we saw back in chapter 4, verse 5. Thy neck is a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bat-Rabin, thy nose as the tower of Lebanon which looketh toward Damascus. So her eyes like pools, her nose well defined. And all this analysis, I have to tell you candidly, uh, is substantially excerpted from Arnold Fruchtenbaum's very incisive works. He, uh, of, all the Greek, uh, of all the Hebrew scholars, one that I respect the most because he really has command of the Hebrew in depth and it isn't uh, distorted or colored from a Talmudic perspective. He's an outstanding Christian uh, expositor and a good friend, by the way. But so I've leaned uh, on a lot of different sources, but I lean very heavily on some of this stuff on Arnold's uh, very incisive works. Moving on, thine head upon thee is like caramel and the uh, flowing locks of your head like purple. The king is captive in the tresses. Her head is majestic, her hair red-purple in effect. Solomon is totally captivated by her. He's a prisoner in her tresses. The dancing ends, the lovemaking begins in chapter 7, verse 6, following. And on the, on the majesty of Mount Carmel, you can find that in Isaiah 35 and Jeremiah 46 and other passages. Let's move on here. There are many vestiges of the ancient wedding customs. 
which included parallels to what we're seeing here. In the weeks succeeding the marriage, the villagers typically assemble. A thrashing board is set up as a throne in which the newly married pair take their seats as king and queen. There are songs of the physical charms of the pair, the dances in which the bride and the bridegroom take part, including a sword dance performed by, uh, performed by the bride with a naked sword in one hand. So these are some of the customs that are associated with this. The bridegroom is sometimes called Solomon as an imaginative designation of a person as an ideal beauty or what have you. And we find a lot of this still embodied in the Syrian wedding customs. You can look this up in the Jewish Encyclopedia or references of that kind to get a flavor of the traditions that seem to accompany what we have uh, laid out here. Now, some of the lessons that this implies, of course, the need for continual creativity in marriage is suggested here. Ruts are to be avoided, overcome, if you will. All things are permissible if agreeable to both parties is the flavor of what the instruction is here. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights, verse 6. See, following the erotic dance, lovemaking begins. This is thy stature is like to a palm tree and thy breast to a cluster of grapes. The Hebrew word there is tamar, which translated palm tree or date palm. It actually refers to the flower out of which develops large clusters of juicy, sweet fruit. And uh, the Hebrew word eshkol is clusters, refers to the dark brown or golden yellow cluster which grows at the summit of the branches and beautifies the appearance of the palm tree. Now, you probably, if you've been to Israel, you've seen this image of two men carrying a bunch of grapes on a pole. The bunch of grapes is so large, it's on a pole between two shoulders. These two guys, are, that is Joshua and Caleb. And that, that is known as the grapes of Eshkol. It is actually the symbol of the ministry of tourism of Israel, drawn, of course, from the... Uh, when Moses sent out the 12 spies, the two came back with a favorable report. That was Joshua and Caleb carrying this bunch of grapes so large that it was on a pole between them. And so uh, that's the echo that we're seeing here uh, in the Song of Songs. Moving on. I said, I will go up to the palm tree and I will take hold of thy boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine and smell of, of thy nose like apples. And the roof of thy mouth or the palate like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. So this is somewhat like the song, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine, if you will. Or what it really translates in here is the moving the lips of the, sweet, of the sleeping and uh, the lips of those that are asleep to speak. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward or upon me. There again is this third time of that commitment. During courtship, that phrase implied security. My beloved is mine and I am his. That was chapter 2, verse 16. After the marriage, it speaks of submission. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Chapter 6, verse 3. During the adjustment periods, we find this, again, accompanying doubts. So it speaks to stability. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. So we have these three statements, but in the context, they, they imply something a little different emphasis. Security, submission, and stability in those three occasions. And it's been suggested this whole passage is incurring creativity in sexual relations. The, the net of all of this is the, a call towards creativity. Couples should not allow themselves to get into a rut in this or any other aspect of their lives. This is focusing on the sexual aspect, but in marriage we should be working to keep it an adventure, keep it exciting. 
no kind of sexual activity between married couples is sinful or unclean as long as it is acceptable to both parties. If acceptable to both parties, uh, this would have seemed to endorse it. Many marital tensions derive from an inappropriate prudishness and a misunderstanding in this area. That's what we believe is the primary application of this passage. Denial on the one hand and imposition on the other are two limits to be avoided. Avoid denial on the one hand and avoid imposing something on your partner. No, it should be acceptable to both sides. That's the ground rule here. Okay, so we're in fifth idol and uh, we're moving from the 10th down to, to the next one. Come, my beloved, let us go forth in the, into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. That's verse 11. This is a longing for home. It's a desire for recre a recreational break. A weekend away, as we, as we would describe it. Let's go into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let's, let's, let's get out of the rut. Let's get out of the routine, see? We all need an occasional respite, especially the wife, especially the wife. Let's go get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish and whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee thy loves. Ooh. See, ostensibly, what they're going to they're return to the region of their original courtship. That's probably the flavor here. The word loves in the Hebrew, dod, is in the plural, which obviously refers to sexual loves. And so uh, the vine has budded. And I think that's referring to the relationship, not the vines. Verse 13, the mandrakes give a smell. At our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Now, these mandrakes show up in the Old Testament a number of places. They are in flower and giving off a fragrance. The Hebrew word for mandrakes is dude, the same root as sexual love, incidentally, as exciting sexual desire, favoring procreation. So they're looked, at, looked upon as an aphrodisiac, if you will. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640, and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.